0: When it's summertime at Jubilee because they let the old bloke have a go on the guitar because <laughs> all the real musicians are away or have just landed from the States or something like that. So um, hopefully my voice will hold out for both things this morning. Well, it's good to see you. How you doing? All right, jolly good. Well, we are continuing this morning our series uh, in uh, looking at the life of David. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you'd like to turn, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're visiting us this morning or you've just returned from a year in another country and uh, been renamed in the process, then uh, you'll find that we're working our way through uh, the life of David, looking at some things about him as we go And so we're beginning to draw this series to a close. We're not at the conclusion of it just yet, um, but by the end of the summer period, uh, we will be. And so we find ourselves this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if I'm honest with you, and I think being honest with you is probably a good thing, that I could say I haven't particularly been looking forward to preaching this message It's not a great episode in the life of David. In fact, it's probably one of his lowest points, if not his lowest point, in terms of his relationship with God and what he does. However, Scripture records for us the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this is pretty bad and pretty ugly, it has to be said. And whilst I've not particularly been looking forward to preaching this passage, I have known that it is also an important passage to preach. And one that is that it's important that we cover. And I believe that God would have some lessons for us this morning. And so um, I'm going to pray and uh, ask that God will be with us and would speak to us and uh, help us together. Is that okay? So uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us this morning, and we pray now as we look at this passage together that you would be our teacher, help us to understand what we've read, and Lord Jesus, we pray that you would apply the truths of your word to our lives. Lord, we hear what you have for us this morning, we ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said amen, amen. Uh, Kevin, would you be as kind, please, to just push the next button up on the light switch, because... The lights aren't quite as they normally are this morning. and I can't see very much. That's better. Hey, there's some people there. Good to see you. There's some smiley people as well. Excellent. Is that okay? Hasn't blinded you too much? That certainly helped me. So that's good. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening he got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite was dead. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jeroboam? Uh, Jerob- Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Job had sent to him. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men's men's died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Not the greatest episode in David's life. But Scripture does recall for us, as we've said, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. So let's just look at what we've read before we ask ourselves what we can learn from it. So looking at the story, the first thing we're told in verse 1 there, do keep your Bible open if you've got it with you, is that in the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Do you notice... In verse 1, we're told what was going on. The writer gives us an insight to the problem right here, beginning of verse 1. David shouldn't have been at home. We're told that in the springtime now, kings go off to war. David should have been out leading his army in battle. He shouldn't have been hanging around at home, kicking his heels, and just wondering what to do. He should have been out there leading the army himself, but he wasn't. And that led to all kinds of trouble. And we often talk about teenagers hanging around on street corners causing trouble, don't we? Maybe you've got some teenagers like that. but I'm sure your teenagers aren't aren't like that. But when you see a group of young people, perhaps bored, sort of kicking their heels, school holiday time, not really sure what to do, that's when they're more likely to get into trouble. Not that they necessarily went out to cause trouble, but they're bored, they're just hanging about, and these things happen. David wasn't a teenager, but his hanging around at home when he should have been out with the army certainly caused him a whole load of trouble. In fact, by this time, commentators reckon David was around the age of 50 or so. And yes, he's a godly (coughs) and successful king. But if we read Scripture carefully we can see some compromises that he's made along the way. Scripture tells us that David took other wives and concubines. And whilst this may have been normal behaviour for ancient kings, God had warned against this very specifically. And so we see that David has an unchecked weakness in this area. And so he's hanging about at home, when he should be off with the army, leading them out. And he's there just on his roof, sitting back, sunbathing. And he looks round, and he sees Bathsheba having a bath. And he likes what he sees. But rather than get off the roof and run away, he carries on looking. And then he starts to make inquiries from his servants. Who's that woman over there that I've just seen? Can you go and find out for me about her? What's her name? Tell me about her. And David discovers that she is the wife of one of his mighty men, one of his faithful warriors, Uriah. And David summons her, and she comes to him, and they sleep together. You see, David had a whole load of power at his disposal. It's often said that the three big temptations for leaders are money, sex, and power. And David had all three. Plenty of money, a whole load of power, and the opportunity for sex. And as we've seen, the situation gets worse because he sleeps with Bathsheba, and then sometime later, the story jumps forward a little while, she finds out that she's pregnant. So it gets worse. Rather than confess his sin at that point, David sets about trying to cover it up. So he sends for Uriah and um, he, he sort of talk, talks to him to supposedly find out how the battle was going. He wasn't interested in that. He wanted him back so he could go and sleep with Bathsheba and make it look like it was their child. But Uriah is a man of good character. And he knows that his colleagues in the army are away. They're at battle. They're under the tents. They're fighting. They're risking their lives for King David and, and his kingdom. So how can he go and sleep with his wife? He won't do it. And he doesn't go home. So when that fails, and David even tries to get him drunk and send him back, and still that doesn't work, he sends him back to the front line carrying his own death notes. Do you notice how he writes a note to his commander and gives it to Uriah to carry himself? Clearly, Uriah was such a man of good character, he didn't look at the note. He just delivered it faithfully to Joab. And in doing so, delivered his own death sentence. Uriah had been with David for years. This was no stranger. This was a close associate, maybe even a friend makes it even more shocking, doesn't it? This is not a good part in David's life. But Scripture records it for us in order that we might learn some things. It's not just so that we can sit here this morning and go, wasn't David bad? Scripture records it for us in order that we can learn some lessons and I trust not fall into the same trap. So as I was looking at this this week and praying and preparing, I came up with seven lessons that I believe this passage teaches us. We don't have a lot of time this morning to develop every one, so I'm going to go at a fair pace. And you may read it through and go, well, there's some other ones as well, and there probably are. But these are some that I noticed this week. And these are designed to help us to lead holy lives that are pleasing to God. But Before we get into this, let me just say this. Obeying this list—this is important. Obeying this list will not make you foolproof to temptation. So don't think that if you just do what the list says, it's all good, because actually, obeying this list doesn't make you foolproof to temptation. Doesn't make you love. Doesn't make God love you anymore, because God loves you anyway. It's not about trying to earn His approval, because you can't do that. You can't earn God's love or His approval. Rather, this is about how to live as a result of receiving God's love and his approval. Does that make sense? So we've received God's love. We've received his welcome and his approval. So this is about how we should live as a result of that, not in order to try and earn that. So let's work our way through and see how we go. Number one. Watch out for when you are vulnerable to temptation. Watch out for when you are vulnerable to temptation. And what this passage shows us here is that you are more vulnerable to temptation when you're not doing what God would have you do. Boredom, just kicking your heels, can, doesn't have to, but can, lead into temptation and ultimately sin So there's no reason to be bored in the kingdom of god god has lots for us to do for his kingdom advance and his glory in the earth now i'm not suggesting for one moment that working ourselves into the ground is a good thing either it's not god designed rest he came up with the idea of a sabbath and a routine of life that gives us regular rest and refreshment that's godly that is good that is not what is happening here David was not doing what he should have been doing. Because if he had been out with his army fighting a battle, none of this would have happened. He wouldn't have seen Bathsheba. He wouldn't have summoned her and slept with her. He wouldn't have found out that she was pregnant. He wouldn't have killed, his, uh, he wouldn't have killed her husband. None of that would have happened if he'd been doing what he should have done to start with. We need to see that temptation itself isn't sin. Everyone is tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. We read about it in Scripture, don't we? You read through the Gospels, you read about how Jesus was tempted, how the devil went to him and tempted him. But he stood firm. He didn't give in, unlike David here. So the issue isn't temptation. The issue is what you do with it when it comes. If you'd sat down with David a few weeks prior to this episode and you'd said to him, David, listen to me. In a few weeks, you're going to commit adultery. Then you're going to murder the husband of the woman you slept with. What do you think he'd say to that? He'd go, no way. There's no way I'd do that. Don't you know that I'm king? Don't you know that I love God? There's no way that I would do that. You can just imagine the conversation, can't you? If you'd said to David, listen, this is what's going to happen in a few weeks time he would have gone no way not me you've got the wrong man i wouldn't do that you see everyone says it could never be me david would have said it could never be me but the truth is that all of us are tempted all of us are vulnerable to temptation so we need to be careful and we need to be on our guard 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's not that we have an enemy who's fairly passive about things and thinks, well, you know, if I love Jesus, that's okay, I'll just sort of sit back. No. Scripture tells us, Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Have you ever seen a hungry lion, you know, waiting for lunch? Maybe you've seen it at a safari. Maybe you've seen it at a zoo. You know, just sort of waiting there, waiting for lunch to come. You know, this great chunk of meat that the keeper's going to throw at it. Prowling around, waiting to devour this food. And then the food comes and bang, lion pounces. Just at the right time. Maybe you've seen it at the documentary programs that you see on television these days. You know, in the wild, natural habitat, not in a zoo or encased somewhere, following a pack of lions, looking to devour their prey just at the right time when the opportunity is best. And bang, lion goes, and that's the end of the deer or whatever it might be that it was chasing. It's horrific. It's scary. Be alert and of sober mind, says Peter. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So, what do we do about that? We see temptation isn't sin. Acting on it is. Temptation isn't sin. Jesus was tempted. It's acting on it that is. So what do you do? My second point. You need to have an early warning alarm. An early warning alarm. Do you recognise this? Maybe you've got one in your home. That is an early warning alarm alarm of smoke in your home. If you talk to a fire officer about fire safety in the home, they'll talk about two things. Firstly, they'll talk about why you should have a working one of these and the importance of it. Smoke alarm goes off when it senses smoke particles in the air before you can see it, particularly if you're asleep, certainly before you can sense it. The smoke alarm sees it and goes off. It gives you warning of impending danger. And you might not see it coming. You might be asleep, but your smoke alarm sees it and goes off and wakes you up. It gives you warning of danger ahead. And only a complete idiot would sleep through a smoke alarm going, oh, the smoke alarm's going off, but I'm tired. It doesn't matter. I'll just leave it. Maybe it'll stop in a minute. You would have to be mad to do that, wouldn't you? If you hear this noise in the middle of the night, you're going to get out of bed and see what's going on. Ours went off the other night in the middle of the night. I thought it was probably the battery. But I wasn't going to chance it. I wasn't going to lay there and think, well, I think it's the battery, but you know what, I'll find out in the morning. Fortunately, it was just the battery, but it might not have been. Friends, you need an early warning system like that in your life that shows you of impending danger. Think about some situations. Imagine what David is like here, hanging about when he should have been out leading the army. Early warning, danger. What about you? Maybe planning your week so that you're in the office the same day as that new attractive colleague you quite like. Maybe it's late night telly, just surfing and seeing what's on, see if you can find something that will. Or maybe it's the old boyfriend or girlfriend from years ago that you have just reconnected with on Facebook. You need an early warning system that goes off and says, listen, there is trouble ahead. So what is that? See, God gives us the Holy Spirit. He's put his Spirit in our hearts, his seal in us to draw us close to him. He talks to us. If we're close to the Lord, he'll give us that check in our spirit that goes, oh, That's not a good thing to do. Oh, is that wise? It's not about following a list. Because in moments like this, you're not going to have a list. And it's not about living in a legalistic way. So I can do this, I can't do that. No, no. It's about living in a way that honors Jesus and loves him. And so it's to do with our hearts. And God has given us a conscience that we need to keep soft and holy to the Lord. So, that there's that check in our spirit when we need to know there's danger ahead and we need to do something about it. The other thing that fire offers say is as well as having a smoke alarm, is planning your escape route. Plan your escape route out. They talk about how it's important that you know how you'd get out of your house if you needed to quickly, if there was a fire. You need to know where the spare key is for that window or for that door that's normally locked. You need to know how you'd get out and what your route would be, what you would do. Not to leave it until it's too late to start thinking about those sort of things when suddenly the house is full of smoke and you've got nowhere to turn. By that point it's too late. So what's your escape route when you're tempted? Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That is a good promise, isn't it? When you're tempted, He'll provide a way out. In every temptation, there is a way out. You don't have to give in, but you do have to run. And at that point, you need to get out. And when it comes to the things that David was struggling with, you can't reason or argue or discuss or think through about it. There's only one thing to do is flee, is run, is get away from it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Temptation, says this, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command, flee. Flee fornication, flee idolatry, flee youthful lusts, flee the lust of the world. There is no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. Every struggle against it in one's own strength is doomed to failure. You've just got to run, get out. And so it's like when this goes off, what do you do? You run. You get out as quickly as as you can. But as well as that, you can do some other things to help you. So number four is you can make wise decisions. Make wise decisions. Things like not putting yourself in the place of temptation to start with. Not being there. See, David's first poor decision wasn't looking at Bathsheba. It wasn't being where he should be with the army. So you can make wise decisions that will help you. Don't put yourself in positions that will be difficult. It's like playing with fire. You'll get burned. It's going to hurt. See, I can't imagine for one moment that David ever thought he would end up murdering a friend to cover up his sin. But he did. I once heard a preacher use this quote, and I can't remember who it was, where it was from but it stuck with me it says this sin leads you further than you wanted to go keeps you longer than you wanted to stay and costs you more than you wanted to pay it's true for david isn't it and it's true for us don't risk it don't chance it make wise godly decisions in advance Number five, don't re- sorry, yeah. Number five, don't rely on good behaviour, but work on your character. Don't rely on good behaviour. Work on your character. You see, the danger with a message like this is it can sound like well, as long as I'm good, it's all right. It's not about being good. It's about allowing God to do something in our hearts. The Bible doesn't tell us to behave well; it tells us to become like Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's the solution here. You see, you won't become more holy by dwelling on your sin and thinking, must stop it, can't do it, mustn't do that, mustn't go there. All you need to do is look to Jesus and go, Lord, it's you I want to be like. I want to be more like you. Help me to be more loving in my character. Help me to be more godly. Help me to be... uh," You can imagine the list, can't you? It's by looking to Jesus that he changes us. It's not by looking to our sin, it's not by looking to where we might struggle or have problems, but it's by looking to Jesus and saying, Lord, I want to be like you. And asking him that the fruit of the Spirit will grow and develop in our lives. Things like love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these things that are fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Say, Lord Jesus, I want those things, not other things. And that happens by looking to Jesus and being with him. Number six, we've got two more. Number six, be accountable. See, so David wasn't accountable. He held all the power and no one challenged him. Well, no one really challenged him. I mean, it's interesting, the... Um, response of his servants isn't it where the man comes to him, isn't isn't that Bathsheba the what the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite it's like the servants trying to drop him a hint here you know do you not realize who this is just to remind you just in case you forgot, on David this is who she is this is her father this is who her husband is your friend out in battle remember but he's only dropping hints he wasn't coming to David saying What are you doing? Get off the roof. Go fight. No one said that to him. Or at least if they did, it's not recorded for us in Scripture. But think about how things could have been so different for him if someone had challenged him. Someone had gone to him lovingly, probably risking their life because he was king. But if they'd gone to him in a loving way and said, David, what you're doing is not good. It's not right. It's not godly. Think about how things could have been so different. I'm part of a team where we regularly talk about how life is, how our marriages are, what's going well, what we're struggling with. When we get together as couples, we talk, frankly, about the challenges that face us. Being accountable to one another is so helpful and so encouraging to us. For me, when I'm, when I'm meeting people, there are two people in my life that always know who I'm meeting and where I'm meeting them. My wife and David, our administrator. And if I'm meeting a, a woman on my own, well, a, I, don't, I try not to do that, but I sometimes have to and I'll make sure it's a public place and I'll make sure that it's known about who I'm seeing and, and why. You know, I, I'd tell Sarah I'd want her to know. I'd much rather she hears from me that I've had to meet so-and-so, I've met them uh, for coffee here, and and this is why, rather than one of her friends phone her up and say, who's the the girl that Graham was with in in Costa the other week? (laughs) You know, that's just creating suspicion, isn't it? And that's just crazy. So be accountable. Let other people stand with you and help you. And finally, number seven, if you're married... Love your spouse. If you're married, love your spouse. I originally entitled this heading, If You're Married, Work on Your Marriage. But that makes it sound like marriage is a project. (laughs) And for the record, I do think marriages need to be worked at. They take effort, they take intentionality. But more than anything, you need to love your spouse, your husband or your wife. Love them. Really love them. And yes, part of that is working on your marriage. That's why we held a marriage morning recently, in order to help couples strengthen their marriages. So husbands, listen to me. Love your wife. Wives, listen. Love your husband. Look for ways to demonstrate it. Look for ways to cultivate that love and help it grow. Don't go looking for satisfaction elsewhere. If you're married, love your spouse. But before we finish, and we will do in a few moments, let me ask this question and answer it for us. What about if you've already blown it? What about if you're identifying with David thinking, you know what, there's more of my life that identifies with this part of David than I'd like there to be? We find in the next chapter that God sends the prophet Nathan to David to challenge and rebuke him. And in doing so, David repents and God forgives him. But there are still consequences to his sin. And the consequences are in place for years and years to come. Yes, God forgives him. His sin is forgiven. But there are still consequences that have to be lived through. You can read it in the next chapter. I'd encourage you. Chapter 12. We don't have time to look at it this morning. But it'll be worth your while reading it this week. Let me ask you to do that if you could. So what about if you're identifying with this part of David's life, thinking, you know what? Yeah, I've already blown it. I've already fallen at that hurdle. What do you do? Well, you need to hear this. There is grace available to you there is forgiveness available to you the bible talks about us needing to confess our sin and repent of it so that we can receive god's forgiveness it's not just about saying well you know what i've sinned but you know what that doesn't really matter because god's a God of love and he'll forgive me so it's all good that's a misunderstanding of what the bible teaches god is a god of love and he does offer us grace and forgiveness. But he also talks about confession of sin and repentance. Repentance isn't just saying, well, you know what? did It doesn't really matter. God will forgive me. That's not repentance. Repentance is a turning around. It's like you're walking in one direction and you turn around and walk in the other direction. That's what repentance is. That's what biblical repentance is all about. It means a change of heart, a change of direction. And so if you've sinned, then God wants to forgive you. He wants to make you clean. He wants you to come to him and confess your sin to him and repent of it. You can't earn your forgiveness. It's a gift of God's grace. But you do need to receive it. and Receive it by faith as you confess and repent. God still used David and he can still use you. But how much better would it have been if David hadn't sinned like this in the first place? How much better would it be if God didn't have to forgive you time and time again because you didn't listen to the alarm going off? How much better if you listened to it and turned in the other direction and ran. Let me finish with a quote from a book that I've quoted from before by a guy called Steve Farrer. The book's called Finishing Strong. And uh, I know I've quoted it before. I make no apology for that. It's a good quote. And he says this. Men, it doesn't, because he's writing particularly to men. I know it applies to women as well, but the book particularly is for men. Men, it doesn't matter if you've had a great start in the Christian life. It doesn't matter if you've stumbled time and again, or even fallen flat on your face. What matters most is how you finish. The man who hangs in for the long haul with his wife, his kids, and his Lord is an exception these days. Maybe only one man in ten will do it. You can be that one in ten. Guys, you, you can be that one in ten. You really can. Men, you can be that one in ten if that statistic is right. You can be that person who hangs in there, who finishes well, who finishes strong. You can be the one who hangs on in difficult times. You can be the one who finishes well, loving Jesus, with your marriage and family intact by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can reach the finish line and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Knowing that you've been faithful, knowing that you've finished well. So I want to encourage us this morning. I believe for some of you, you probably need to pay attention this noise for some of you you need to listen to the smoke alarm and run for others of you you need to know God's grace and forgiveness and for others of you who are perhaps living with the consequences now of either what went wrong in your life or someone else's life that has affected you you need to receive God's love and his grace afresh this morning so I want us to stand together And I'm going to pray as we close. I'm going to ask God to do these things. And they're different things that I believe he wants to do, but I believe he's here by his Spirit and he wants to minister to us. So perhaps we can just close our eyes before the Lord and I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that David's life is recorded for us in Scripture in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Lord, we don't for one moment want to sit back and judge David and say what an awful man he was because he was a man after your heart. He loved you. And Lord, we know that we're capable of awful things as well. And so, Father, this morning, firstly, I want to pray for any who need to hear, as it were, the smoke alarm going off in their life. I pray for any, Lord, who need to hear that warning, to run, to turn around, to do something different, to be proactive in avoiding sin. Lord, I ask, please, would you uh, you come by your Spirit, Lord? Would you bring conviction by your Spirit? Thank you, Lord, that you don't condemn us, but thank you that you do convict us. And so, Father, for any this morning who need to hear that voice of you saying, you need to run, you need to change direction. Lord, I pray for hearts to be open to hear those things. And Father, for any who have fallen in this area or maybe others and this morning knowing that they need to come to you afresh and receive your forgiveness. Lord, I pray for true and genuine repentance I pray for a changing of mind, a changing of heart, a changing of direction. And in that moment, Lord, I pray that Jesus, they would receive your forgiveness and your fresh life. I pray for your grace to be abundant this morning. Thank you that we've sung about your grace. Lord, it is amazing. We've sung about it. Thank you, Lord. It's abundant. And I pray for your abundant grace to come this morning to any who need to receive it. And Jesus, I pray too for any who are living with the consequences of decisions that were made, either by themselves or by others who were close to them. Lord, I pray for them as well, right now, that again, your grace would be sufficient. That Jesus, you would come to them and they would know your closeness, your love, your presence, and your grace. In every day, as I live through situations, Lord, I ask, please, would you sustain by the power of your Spirit, and would you come by your grace? So, Lord, as we've looked this morning at what's a difficult subject and not a great episode, really, to consider, I pray, Father, that we would learn the lessons we need to learn, that looking at your Word would do us good, and that we would live lives that honour you and love you, And Lord, we receive and live in the good of your grace. We ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us this morning. Listen, before before you run, before we we go, let me just say this. We're not going to have a ministry time right now. We're going to go and have coffee and tea in a moment. But if this has brought up things that you'd like to pray about with somebody, and I realize it may have done, and I think Ray and John and maybe a few others are going to be around and some ladies as well at the front. And we'd love to pray with you if you like that. Okay? So God bless you. Have a great week. Picnic at Arboretum. Tea and coffee and donuts just now. God bless you. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday here at 10 o'clock.